Hello, and welcome to this first episode of our Asia-Pacific edition of Herbert Smith Freehill's Construction Law Masters podcast series. My name is Dan Waldeck, and I'm off counsel in the Herbert Smith Freehill's Construction Dispute Resolution team based in our Singapore office. In this series, I and my colleagues from across the Asia-Pacific region will be welcoming guests to discuss their experience and personal views on issues of interest to those involved in construction projects and the disputes which emanate from those projects. In this first episode, I'm privileged and delighted to be joined by the esteemed Anselmo Reyes, barrister and senior counsel, former judge of the Court of First Instance in Hong Kong, academic, arbitrator, and now also international judge of the Singapore International Commercial Court. Welcome, Anselmo, to this podcast. Thank you for having me. Hong Kong, you practice for, for, I think, close to 15 years. Uh, including being elevated to the role of uh, the honour of senior counsel. Um, you were then elevated to the bench where you as judge of the court of first instance for nine years. Uh, perhaps most relevantly to our discussion today, between 2004 and 2008, you were the judge in charge of the construction and arbitration list in Hong Kong uh, and has since come on to become an international judge here at Singapore of the Singapore International Commercial Court. Drawing on your impressive judicial career, perhaps we could start by you sharing your reflections on how a typical construction case has, in your view, uh, changed over the years, uh, generally, but also as between what you saw in Hong Kong and what you see now more globally. I think in terms of Hong Kong construction cases, uh, what has changed over the years is there's, there's been a greater focus on the mediation of cases so that because mediation tends to be successful in quite a lot of construction cases, in fact, fewer construction cases seem to me, at least as a matter of impression, to be coming to uh, the construction uh, uh, court in Hong Kong nowadays. One has more cases having to do with arbitration, uh, the supervision of arbitration, rather than what might, one might call pure hardcore construction cases. And I attribute that to the courts pushing promotion, encouragement of uh, mediation, along with the uh, support given to mediation by the Hong Kong government and all sorts of all other stakeholders. So that, that I think is, is, is the major change. There's mm. been a great emphasis for mediation. Uh, and what do you think it is? It might be that is so particular then about construction as a type of dispute that is so well suited then um, to having parties uh, try and resolve that through the mediation process. At heart, I think construction cases are a bargaining. Um, the typical structure of a construction case in Hong Kong is a subcontractor or a sub subcontractor suing the contractor above, the head contractor or the head con main contractor suing the employer, you're suing the next level above you for your money. And the problem is in Hong Kong, quite a lot of subcontractors are not big companies, they're small subcontractors engaged by large companies and they need to maintain their cash flow. So it's important from their perspective to settle or get a, a deal as quickly as possible in order to get some cash and in order to survive. And the main contractor often, or the head contractors tend to put pressure 
on the subcontractors uh, in the form of, well, if you, I'm not going to give you what you want, you have to sue me. And then the, the, the case is a protracted case that takes some time. Well, that's not possible. Therefore, um, it, it seems to me conducive to mediation, even if the um, uh, head contractor says, well, su I'll see you in court, if they have a weak case, then really in a mediation, that's bound to come out and the parties are bound to come to some sort of um, satisfactory compromise. And, and, and how do you think that then changes in terms of jurisdictions outside of Hong Kong, perhaps using Singapore as an example where they have, like the UK, uh, statutory uh, leg legislation which provides for adjudication to deal with uh, the cash flow issue, the, you know, the pay now, argue later approach. Do you think that then has an impact on the relevance or importance of mediation in, in, in construction cases? I think definitely. Um, my understanding of the adjudication process in Singapore and the United Kingdom and um, in a place, say, in other jurisdictions, Malaysia, is that it has been enormously successful in getting cash flow going and getting the project going uh, while parties may still be in dispute. After the adjudication, after the project is over, um, it seems that the parties are generally satisfied with the results of the adjudication and they tend not to arbitrate or litigate uh, the differences thereafter. So that's enormously successful. But in, in a place like Hong Kong, where the adjudication um, legislation has been discussed for a long time, nothing has really been done to get it going. So there's a bill, I believe, but uh, that's been around for a long time. And therefore, the structure is a little different in, uh, in Hong Kong. Sure. And then, uh, obviously, ultimately, a lot of these still do find their way uh, into the courts or in front of arbitrators. Uh, so perhaps we could just have a, a have, have a quick chat then about some of those cases, particularly those that you you focused on and, and heard uh, during your time in, in Hong Kong. And there's one that I think uh, that, that is that is quite interesting in particular. That is your decision in 2005 in the, the Hong Kong Housing Authority and Sinyi Architects case. Um, and there, I think the defendant relied on the older English authority, Ruxley Electronics. Um, and as those listening to, to this podcast might recall, in Ruxley, the contractor constructed a swimming pool that was shallower than the contractual specifications. And when the case wound its way up to the, uh, to, to the House of Lords in the UK, they refused to award the, the cost of rebuilding the pool because actually that was deemed to be or considered to be disproportionate to the diminution in the pool's value. Um, and I think in the Hsinyi case, you decided that Ruxley did not apply. Uh, I'd be interested to hear, how did you reach that conclusion? and Why was that memorable decision for you? First, let's look at Ruxley. I think that the uh, House of Lords in Ruxley found the plaintiff, the claimant's case there, a somewhat cynical one. The, claim, uh, the claimant never intended to live in the house where the swimming pool was just a few inches um, um, less than what it should have been. The whole deal was, uh, the whole intention was to sell the property as a sort of investment. So um, one wasn't going to live there. What happened in Chinye? 
In Xinye, uh, a building, a housing block, or several housing blocks, were built with a tilt, a noticeable tilt, not quite as radical perhaps as the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but a noticeable <laughs> tilt. And the um, respondent's case, the defendant's case was, well, okay, you've lost some amenity value. We're prepared to give you the loss of amenity value, see Ruxley Electronics. But if we were to uh, correct the tilt to make the building straight and proper, that would cost an awful lot more, and that would not be worth it, given that people can live in a building that's slightly tilted. It may be a little bit disturbing, but uh, it's perfectly safe. So um, just follow Ruxley Electronics. That was the uh, submission by the defendant. But I thought there was quite a big difference. For most Hong Kong people, the, the flat the place where they're going to live is their major investment. This is not uh, being done to uh, um, just buy a flat and then sell it. This is a public housing. This is a public housing building. People were actually going to live there. And that was going to be where they were going to put in quite a lot of their money. They're going to live there. They're going to have to stay there for many years. It seems a little hard on them to say, all right, uh, sorry, sorry about the tilt. We'll give you a little bit of money to, to satisfy you and then go off. The developer goes off. I, 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 don't think that that I didn't think that was the right idea. And therefore, I, I said that uh, Ruxley is fact sensitive. On its facts, Ruxley may have been right, but it certainly doesn't apply in this wholly different case. Thank you. Um, while you were, were sitting uh, as a judge in, in Hong Kong, uh, obviously heard, would have heard many cases, not just about construction specifically, but given the way that the, I understand the court system was set up, also a lot of arbitration-related cases. Now, some of those may well have uh, arisen from construction disputes, but uh, many, I'm sure, wouldn't have done. But I think one thing that, that is interesting is, is certainly I see in my practice that arbitration is increasingly the preferred choice dispute resolution forum, particularly for construction projects, almost uh, always where there is a cross-border element. And one of the most important considerations that, that I think our clients take into account uh, is the importance of not just having a decision, but the ability to take that decision and effectively enforce it against your counterparty. No one likes a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, and I, I therefore thought it was interesting uh, that there was a, a, a line of cases from your time in on Hong Kong that very much goes to the, uh, the subject of enforcement of awards. In particular, the 2008 decision in Xiaomen uh, and Eaton Properties, um, which concerned the enforcement of a mainland arbitration award. And in that case, you observed that the role of the enforcing court uh, should be as mechanistic as possible. What, what did you mean by that? And that's part of the problem. Incidentally, the Eaton Properties case is being heard, I believe today, by the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong. Uh, the uh, substantive matter, I think it, it came to me on an interlocutory uh, question, but um, substantively it's being heard by the Court of uh, Final Appeal. I believe uh, Lord Sumption is one of the judges sitting in on, on the case, uh, albeit virtually, from a, remotely. I meant by the mechanistic principle that in 
deciding whether or not to set aside an award or to uh, enforce, recognize and enforce an award, particularly in the latter, uh, say enforcing court's job would be to look at the judgment. You don't go into the merits. And if it looks right, then you uh, recognize and enforce it pursuant to the New York Convention. And your one's approach should be mechanistic rather than going through the detail of the award. Later on, I realized that um, when I used the word mechanistic, got it from an English case, uh, that I realized that that was too vague, highly subjective. What exactly does it mean to be mechanistic? And therefore, in a later case, A&R, I tried to simplify that. And I said, um, I, there I equated, I, I gave a, I thought an, an easier version of the mechanistic test by reference to the public policy ground for refusing enforcement. Unless the, uh, the case is, uh, the award is something that is completely repugnant to the fa fundamental norms of the enforcing court or the enforcing state, then you can't use the public policy ground as a basis for refusing recognition and enforcement. I thought that was easier uh, than saying something with, well, you have to take a mechanistic approach. You don't have, you don't look at the detail of the award. You just uh, decide on the basis of the face of the award, whether it should or should not be enforced. And that was too, um, that was too arbitrary, I thought. So I, 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 I uh, regretted that. Uh, and it's interesting then that you, 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 you did pick up on the public policy Point there, because that that plagues practitioners and users alike, I think, around the world. Because, of course, what is um, relevant for the purposes of determining public policy in Hong Kong may be different to Singapore, to Malaysia, or Vietnam, or, or China. Uh, and each case will, each of those cases will be need to be taken on on its on its merits. But what do you see then as the core defining factor of what is contrary to public policy? I think it's what I said a moment ago. It's whether something, an award, enforcement of the award, would be contrary to the fundamental norms of the enforcing state. It's not enough that the arbitrators may have got the uh, law wrong. That, that's, I mean, that's a hazard of arbitration. There must be something repugnant about the award, enforcement of the award, almost from a moral standpoint. That's what I meant about public policy. But what I see now is that public policy tends not to be the main ground on which awards are challenged nowadays, either in setting aside recourse applications or recognition enforcement applications. The main ground tends to be a lack of observance of due process. Uh, a, a failure by the tribunal to give um, typically a respondent a reasonable opportunity or a full opportunity to present its case. That is sometimes dressed up as, well, because there was a, a lack of a due process, then as a matter of public policy, the award should not be enforced. But it comes down to an Article 5.1 New York Convention ground uh, lack of due process rather than Article 5.2 New York Convention ground, um, contrary to public policy. These, I think, are what pose today 
more difficult questions, whether or not due process has been observed. Um, and that I think is, um, is the challenge nowadays for, for, for courts, for judges, um, trying to evaluate the due process, not necessarily just of your jurisdiction, but the process followed by um, an arbitral tribunal that may be sitting in some other jurisdiction with perhaps different ideas of due process. That, that, that's very interesting that we find ourselves sort of then moving into the realm of, of due process. Uh, I think it, it's fair to say that a, a hot topic that many are interested in is the concept of due process paranoia, though, which is how, how far then can a, a, an arbitral tribunal go uh, with controlling its own procedure um, in a way that is uh, ensuring the, the timely cost-effective resolution of a dispute without infringing upon fundamental principles of, of due process, which, as you say, are uh, enshrined within the New, New York Convention. Um, what do you think parties could uh, expect from you if you were the arbitrator uh, for your approach to arbitration procedure and keeping in check due process paranoia? Well, I'm not sure that I'm I've been very good at keeping in check due process paranoia. When I was a judge, uh, I had a reputation for being rather hard line. That is, uh, there were no adjournments, uh, full stop. Uh, as an arbitrator, I find myself giving uh, adjournments. Uh, perhaps uh, some people might say too many adjournments. So I, I seem to be afflicted to some extent by due process uh, paranoia. Um, I think the approach that one might expect of me as an arbitrator is this. I've, I've written about due process paranoia in the context of Professor Gaillard's uh, three theories of arbitration. What gives an arbitral award its validity? Some might say, a typical common law point of view, is that uh, an award derives its uh, validity by the law of the seat of arbitration. So in that case, if you follow the procedure of the law of the seat, if you abide by, say, the rules of court, or don't deviate too much from it, then you'll be safe as a matter of observing due process. Another theory that uh, Professor Gaillard mentions is um, the theory that an arbitral award derives its validity from the sum total of jurisdictions that are parties to the New York Convention. In other words, um, your award is valid to the extent that it is enforceable in as many New York con uh, Convention jurisdictions as possible. Now, there are problems with that because um, then you have uh, different jurisdictions have very different ideas about uh, due process. And you may have to go down to uh, what might say the least common denominator in order to have an enforceable award, if that's the theory you subscribe to. The theory that I subscribe to is the third one. That is that an arbitral award derives its validity from international commercial principles. It transcends the domestic law of any particular jurisdiction. So that the arbitrator trying to conform with due process must try to discern, and that's what I try to do, what are due process principles that are consistent with international commercial practice, international commercial best practice. Now, there's no list of this anywhere. And 
I, I've given speeches where I've suggested maybe now's the time, however difficult it may be, to try to list out principles of due process. But there's no list. And some might say, well, this is impossible. How are you going to do it? I suggest that um, this is very much like the common law. There is no list of common law principles of commercial, uh, of say, sale of goods. But that doesn't deter judges from determining what sale of goods principle applies in a particular case as a matter of common law. So the sum total of judicial pronouncements on what international commercial best practice is in relation to due process, I think, gives a clue as to what due process would be. Therefore, as an arbitrator, what I would welcome in difficult due process um, situations would be um, counsel or uh, uh, legal representatives appearing before me pointing to the practice in a range of legal, in a range of jurisdictions as to what how a particular problem has been approached from the point of view of giving a reasonable or full opportunity. I believe, for instance, the Singapore Court of Appeal has recently ruled on what full opportunity to present a case means. Well, uh, references to such cases, I think, will help guide an arbitral tribunal, would help guide me as to how to approach questions of due process in difficult situations. I'm not just talking about an adjournment here, an adjournment there, uh, six days extra here, give me another two weeks uh, for a witness statement there. No, I'm, I'm talking about much more uh, um, difficult, much more um, nuanced dilemmas for an arbitrator. How would one approach it? Guided, I think, by the jurisprudence of other jurisdictions, not just one, but as many as possible. And I think the current circumstances that we find ourselves in in the world today with uh, the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, perhaps might impact that assessment in terms of the, um, the difficulties that parties and tribunals and courts are, are facing around the world in having to adapt those known practices and those established practices such as they are to, um, to account of the travel restrictions, the regulatory restrictions that many of us are, are currently facing. Do you think that that will be a, have a short-term impact? It's just a blip. Or do you think that will have a lasting and sort of profound impact on, uh, on, on uh, dispute resolution procedures uh, in the future? I think both. What do I mean by that? We can divide the impacts into two. At the moment, um, a lot of parties are, are scrambling to try to, let's say, um, build their witness statements, meet the witness in order to get a statement, meet the expert in order to explain the case, explain the questions that the expert has to deal with, and then get the expert's views and discuss with the expert. Um, a lot of people have not been, are not prepared or not fully prepared to do this sort of thing by remote um, uh, remote applications, video conferencing, and so on. We're not. We're just not used to that. And in the past, people have flown from one jurisdiction to another, or from one place to another, to meet the expert or to meet the witness, get a statement, or get down uh, 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 an expert report. I think, in due course, as a result of our living in a post-COVID nineteen era, we will get over that impact 
and the taking of evidence, the taking of expert, uh, uh, the uh, drafting of expert reports with remote technology will become increasingly the norm. So that in due course, there will be fewer applications for extension of time due to, I can't get to my witness, I can't get to my expert, we can't have uh, conferencing to deal with uh, so that everyone understands what the case is about. So that impact, that negative impact, will be, I think, temporary. The permanent impact, however, will be the use of remote technology, both in terms of court hearings, arbitration, just the use of uh, remote technology generally. Um, uh, affordability comes into play. Um, and there is, because you don't have to fly, you don't have to spend so much time traveling, um, it can be more immediate. You can have hearings, once everyone gets used to this situation, much more quickly, much more promptly. I think that will be a major change and it will have implications to access to justice. With Zoom or with other um, remote conferencing applications, then you can have a quick arbitration at an affordable cost. So even um, persons that perhaps do not have the means will be able to engage in arbitration um, and uh, resolve their disputes at an affordable cost. Hopefully it will deal with the problem of cost in international arbitration. Mm. And I think uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a, a, a difficult subject, particularly in large construction disputes where you might have um, many, many witnesses of fact, experts of numerous different disciplines, documentary trails running back many, many years, all the way from sort of early design stage, feed stage, all the way through detailed design, construction records, commercial records, so on and so forth. Um, this can become very, very, very unwieldy. Now, in, in your experience, both as um, a judge and an arbitrator, what do you think are, are your, what are your views on the most appropriate techniques for helping control the costs of handling the impact of all of those things in complex and large construction disputes? I think um, perhaps three points can be made there. One is, I suggest that at a very early stage, one attempt mediation. I know that it's sometimes suggested that mediation should be attempted later rather than sooner, but I think to save time and money, mediation can be quite effective if it is attempted earlier. And for the reasons we've discussed, construction disputes being more like negotiations, um, bargaining process, I think mediation can be successful in eliminating um, most, if not all, issues in dispute in, in a... In a, in a even in a large commercial um, matter. So the first is mediation. The second is realism. Increasingly, I find that there is an attitude of the longer one's submissions, the longer one's witness statements, the more the detail that is um, thrown at the court or the tribunal, uh, the better for one's case. I think the reverse is actually um, the truth. 
one must remember that arbitrators and judges are only human beings. There's only so much that they can absorb at any given time. So they would be grateful, I think, I would be grateful for succinctness. Uh, uh, this, uh, I think, a realism as to what the court can do um, is very important. And the third uh, matter that I think would help bring down the costs is um, attention to remote technology in the way that we've, we've just discussed. So those are the three matters. There was a time when um, I despaired of the costs of arbitration going down. And I think I gave a speech at, um, some time ago where I said, well, I've given up on uh, trying to bring down the cost of arbitration purely through um, technical means in arbitrations themselves, because um, the nature of arbitration, it's a one-shot deal. If you don't get everything in uh, during the arbitration, there are only limited bases for setting aside an award or getting um, uh, recognition or enforcement of the award refused. So I thought, well, there's no way it can be done. It's just the, it's just the nature of the beast. And perhaps the only way would be to have competing modes of dispute resolution, such as litigation and arbitration, and the two modes competing against each other would bring down the cost of each other. If uh, arbitration is too expensive, put in a choice of court agreement, go for instance to the SICC. If the litigation is too expensive, go to arbitration. So the two modes would compete with each other and bring each other's price down. I still believe that that can be done, but I believe within arbitration itself, there are a lot of things that uh, parties, the legal representatives can do. And I'll, especially in this COVID-19 world where uh, uh, cash flow is important, where uh, there's going to be a lot of economic hardship. You cannot have these protracted arbitrations, even in complex disputes. You can't have these protracted, costly disputes. So there must be a better way of doing things by breaking up uh, questions into their component parts and maybe hiving off different parts with different modes of dispute resolution. Only matters of important principle, for instance, going to the court or to the arbitral tribunal. And you, you mentioned there the Singapore International Commercial Court. Uh, you were amongst the inaugural batch of the international judges appointed to that court. Uh, I think the term has been since renewed. What do you think sets the SICC apart from courts in other countries? And how do these make the SICC an attractive forum, particularly for, for construction disputes? I think what sets the SICC apart is its ambition. It wishes to be, it aspires to be a commercial court for the whole world, Asia in particular, but not necessarily just limited to Asia, but for the world at large. And it realizes that what it has to do in order to be that court for the world would be to engage in the latest technology, for instance, uh, remote conferencing for evidence, for hearings, um, it has to have the state-of-the-art rules of court that are easy to understand, that are clear, that will facilitate the flow of litigation in the SICC. And in order to do that as well, it needs to have the expertise, judges who know about these, 
matters, uh, commercial matters, but say construction matters, and who can deal with them in a no-nonsense, direct way. And I think that's what the importance of the SICC is. It's ambition. It's an attempt to say, we are a court for everyone. We are a court to handle uh, particular cases that a particular complex commercial and construction disputes uh, for the world at large. And these are the sorts of ways, the services that we are offering in order to be that court for everyone. I just want to pick up on one of the points that you alluded to earlier, um, the difference between decisions of courts and decisions of, of arbitrators. As you say, the court decision might be seen as the manifestation of the state whereas an arbitration award is a creature of the parties, ultimately the parties' agreement. That's a perspective, obviously, on the outcome, the decision. I'm interested to hear about your views and the differences in approach to the decision maker. So when you wear your hat as a judge, formerly in Hong Kong, now in Singapore as well, versus when you're sitting as an arbitrator, what do you think are the biggest differences in approach, if any, in the way that you go about um, handling your cases? I think that there are three um, differences. One is, taking the viewpoint of an international commercial arbitrator, if, as I said before, the, um, what gives your arbitral award validity are international commercial principles, then you should be looking internationally, globally, uh, as to how you conduct yourself in an arbitration. In other words, you can't just look, take the Singapore situation, you can't just look at the Singapore uh, rules of court. You can look at it, but that's not the end. You have to look at what is international practice. So as an international uh, arbitrator, you, you welcome, I think, um, soft law instruments, the IBA guidelines and conflict of interest, the IBA rules and taking of evidence. There are multiplicity nowadays of soft law instruments that I look to as an arbitrator for guidance on how I should approach particular questions in accordance with best international practice. Judges don't have to do that. Judges look at the rules of their court and they're familiar with the rules of their court in Singapore, the ROC, and they apply that. I think that's a, a, a big difference. Arbitrators are not just looking at the rules of some court, but have to have regard to international best practice. To some extent, judges are constrained by the rules of court and must um, conform with the rules of court. So that's one um, difference. Second difference is something that we've touched on a moment ago. When I was um, a judge in Hong Kong, I, I never thought about how my, my judgment would be enforced. I never worried about that. I always assumed that my judgment will, will my judgment is my judgment. It'll be enforced in whatever way. As an arbitrator, because you are duty bound to produce an award that well, to use your best endeavors to produce an award that can be enforced, not just within the seat of arbitration, not just say the jurisdiction with which you may be familiar, but in other jurisdictions with which you may be unfamiliar, then you have to worry about 
the recognition and enforcement of your award in other jurisdictions. And that's difficult because you may not know what the rules of recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards are in other jurisdictions. You may not know what the rules of due process or what is contrary to public policy in other jurisdictions. And that poses a dilemma amongst judges, uh, amongst arbitrators, and that can give rise and has given rise to due process paranoia. I think the third difference is a more philosophical difference. Judges swear an oath at the beginning of their tenure to abide by the law, to implement the law of their jurisdiction, but also to do justice, to do justice in a particular situation. Arbitrators don't swear an oath. Arbitrators are simply appointed. They may be uh, subject to the rules of a particular institution if they're on its panel, but otherwise they're just appointed. They don't swear an oath to do justice. And I think that makes a difference. When you're a judge, in any given case, especially in hard cases, you always look back on your oath. My oath is to do justice and not just to apply the law. In what way am I doing justice here? You constantly ask yourself that. I'm not sure the arbitrators do that. They have more mundane concerns about getting out an award that is enforceable. Not necessarily, perhaps they might even think they shouldn't look to the justice of a particular case. All they're there to do is apply the law as they understand it, as submitted by the parties. And if they apply the law, that will be sufficient to do justice in a particular case. I, I don't think it's necessarily the same thing. And another feature of arbitration, particularly in for construction disputes, uh, comes back to this multi-jurisdictional scenario that is so common. You have an employer developing an asset in one country, and you have contractors from around the world, from around the region, who are coming in bidding and then winning contracts to, to develop that particular asset. When disputes arise on these projects, um, where those disputes are in front of a court, I think one interesting aspect of it is they tend to then be represented by uh, counsel, all of a similar background. Whereas international commercial arbitration, uh, you may find yourself sitting as an arbitrator. And on the one hand, if you have a Singaporean owner, you might have a Singaporean lawyer uh, who is counsel for the owner. And the contractor may be in Japanese, and you may have a Japanese counsel appearing for the contractor. What do you find is one of the biggest challenges for you as an arbitrator in that type of cross-border construction dispute um, in that context? To ensure a level playing field. Now, this a problem is not just found in international commercial arbitration. Before the SICC, um, it is possible for foreign lawyers to appear and make representations directly to the court. The SICC tries to maintain a level playing field by requiring foreign lawyers appearing before it to uh, abide by a code of conduct. And that code of conduct would have principles familiar to Singapore lawyers, familiar to common lawyers, but that ensures a level playing field. How do you ensure a level playing field in international commercial arbitration? This is something I've worried about because there a lot of different styles of advocacy. 
For instance, in some jurisdictions, um, it is regarded as a disciplinary offense uh, for counsel uh, to coach witnesses. In other jurisdictions, uh, counsel are duty bound to coach witnesses. So where you have an arbitration with counsel from one type of jurisdiction appearing before you against counsel from another type of jurisdiction, how do you ensure that the one that is able to coach witnesses doesn't have an unfair advantage over the counsel that is not allowed by um, his or her professional organization to coach witnesses? Um, there are some guidelines on party representation and so on um, that you uh, arbitral tribunal can, in procedural order number one, say are to apply. But, but this is a major problem. I think at the end of the day, the real way of dealing with it is not so much through guidelines as through capacity building, through training, um, through having courses, workshops at what one might call international advocacy. So we need more capacity building and in international advocacy. We need to understand what do we mean by international advocacy um, and how we can best develop young counsel to show this, these skills of international uh, advocacy. Um, this, is, this is particularly a matter of interest uh, to me and uh, I'm, we're, we're trying um, in Japan and other jurisdictions to, to, to develop this. I, I think this is necessary, again, in order to give or to ensure that international arbitration maintains its credibility. It's not just something where anything goes in terms of advocacy. I'm really pleased that you brought that up. Uh, what three tips would you give uh, arbitration lawyers uh, who are going to appear before you uh, to be most effective in their written uh, or and or all advocacy? I think um, the first tip is this. I think that the most powerful um, weapon in an advocate's arsenal is to concede one's uh, bad points. Say, I accept that these points are, are, are bad. However, and then focus on your best points. I think that's, that is, gives a message to the tribunal or to the court, you can trust me. I'm not going to overstate my case beyond the point where my case can go. I'm not going to mislead you. That's very, very important. I think that's the key point. Second, all dispute resolution, whether in court or before a tribunal, is issue-driven. So what the court or tribunal would appreciate from the outset is for counsel to identify clearly what are the key issues in a case. Not the thousand and one sub-issues, but what are the main issues, and hopefully main issues of principle, that a court or tribunal has to decide. Identification of the issues, and that's an art, unfortunately, an art that is not necessarily being taught at law school today. Identification of the key issues of the case. 
and then using that as a guide to submissions as to a guide to how the court or tribunal should approach a particular case. A final thing is, um, again, picking up on what we've talked about previously, is succinctness. How can you make your point as economically as possible? How can you make your point, let us say, in cross-examination as economically as possible? What is the most efficient way you say you write out your questions, you go through each question and you ask yourself, do I really have to ask this? What is the point of this? What is the point of that? And one needs to be brutal. If there is no point, then you cross it out. If you make your sub write out your submissions, of every word, every comma, every sentence, every paragraph, you ask yourself, why am I saying, why am I writing this? Is that a worthwhile reason or it's just fluff? If it's just fluff, if there's no good reason, then you just delete it. I think courts, tribunals will appreciate succinctness. They will appreciate going directly to the main issues. Of course, we can discuss the sub-issues, but let's not be distracted by them in the first instance. What are the key issues? And they will appreciate the counsel who does not um, waste their time on meaningless, on bad points, but focuses on the good points. And there may only be one, two, or three good points on a particular issue. If there's only one point in a particular issue, then fine, run with it. Don't try to embellish. That's very helpful guidance. And I think uh, wise words of wisdom one final question for you, drawing on all of your experience um, in your career, all the developments and all the trends that you've seen uh, in, in, in arbitration, in particular construction arbitration. Looking ahead, what do you think, based on that experience, is likely to be the single biggest development uh, in this space over the next 15 to 20 years? That's hard to say, looking, looking into crystal ball, but I think that um, the biggest development, uh, well, first, let me say, I, I have doubts that we will be clear of COVID-19. Um, even with a vaccine, I think it will always be with us, like the common flu. It will always be there. When there is a vaccine, we'll probably have to be vaccinated every now and then. Uh, we will have to probably have um, what... Um, a particular one author, one commentator is called the dance. Every now and then there will be have to be lockdown or restriction of a particular community or a particular place. Um, that will just be a fact of life. Given this environment, uh, given that we seem to be in a economic recession that will probably last or its effect will last over a period of time. In other words, it's not going to be a V-shaped recovery. It may be an L-shaped Hopefully it'll be at least U-shaped, but maybe L-shaped. Even that, I think the lasting change will be this use of remote technology. I've taken the occasion of lockdown, of, of being uh, of living a life of self-isolation, a semi-monastic life, to do a little bit more reading. And one of the books that has influenced me uh, deeply is uh, Professor Richard Susskind's book on online courts and the future 
of our legal system. I, I think that this is probably a, one of the most promising developments that has come out of this COVID-19 uh, pandemic situation. Uh, the appreciation of what can be done with remote technology. More can be done. There's still a lot to be squeezed out, but we've started on that. And that will have a long lasting effect, I think, on dispute resolution in the next um, decade or, or so. Um, we talked about advocacy and international advocacy a moment ago. Uh, for instance, virtual technology requires a particular style of advocacy, a particular style of adducing evidence. And we'll have to be developing those means. We'll have to be groping our way trial and error to work out what is the most effective way uh, to do that. And then what is the most effective way for um, the public, however remote, wherever they may be, however socially distanced, what is the most effective way to enable that public to have access to this technology in order to have access to the courts and to vindicate um, their rights, whether contractual, whether uh, tortious, whether even um, um, personal, whether matters of status, how to uh, help vindicate their rights. I think that, that this technology promises a lot for the future. Paradoxically, it comes in a moment of darkness, a moment of challenge, but uh, I mean, one can't really help that. Well, thank you for those, uh, for those words of wisdom. Asama Reyes, thank you for joining us. To all our listeners, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.